We all have tales we tell ourselves, of which we are the hero. But what if Jesus became the subject? How would that change the way our stories unfolded? If the savior of the world was our focus? If every tale we told had Jesus as the main character? And every plot twist was part of a cosmic narrative? A narrative that guided our lives and dictated our decisions? From nativity to humanity, his story led from king to cross. A heroic journey from a humble servant to a holy sacrifice. Calling and leading, healing and revealing. And now he is our guide. Through every act and scene, not as a figure of the past, but present through to our future. Leading us through every peak and valley and holding our hand through every cliffhanger. All we must do is let him take the lead and reign as king in the center of our story. Well, good morning. It is good to have you here in Bellingham. Those of you in Skagit, thanks for joining us in that Boca Raton at the Trinity Church of God as well as online. It's good to have you with us today. You know, as we gather together, there's, a, there's a, a, an act of unfairness that's going on. Our children are involved in one of the most incredible children's ministry called Explorers League, and they get like fish crackers and snacks. And we don't get snacks in big church. So I brought this in today, and uh, we'll see. It's got five small barley loaves and a couple fish. I was thinking about just kind of <laughs> trying to try my hand at some stuff out of the Bible. Actually, it doesn't. This isn't for you at all. Um, I have in here a, a junior bacon cheeseburger from Wendy's, and uh, that's in, in case I get hungry later on in the service, so I'll just leave that here. My blood sugar level gets low, I'll just take a little break for a snack, so that's good. Hey, we're in this series called Jesus is a Subject, and we're going through the book of Mark. This is week, I don't know, seven or eight, and um, today we're going to be in Mark chapter seven, so if you have your Bible or your uh, tablet or phone, want to join along, start turning to Mark seven. Last weekend, Pastor Kip finished up Mark chapter 5, did a, an amazing job. If you were not here last week, I would encourage, encourage you to go online and watch last weekend's sermon or, or do the, the uh, uh, what's that when you don't watch it, but you listen to it? That one. <laughs> listen to this sermon or watch it. It was great. Um, so he finished up chapter five. We're going to look at chapter seven today. In essence, we're going to skip over most of chapter six, actually all of it today. And it's not because chapter six is not important. In fact, quite the opposite. There's a lot of very significant things that happen in Mark chapter six. While you're getting to Mark chapter seven, let me just summarize Mark chapter six. It starts off where Jesus goes back to his hometown in Nazareth and he goes into the synagogue as was his custom and he teaches. And again, there are some people that are absolutely amazed at his teaching. And what's interesting is that Jesus is amazed at some of the people because of their lack of faith. Right on the heels of that, he sends the 12 disciples out two by two to go out and preach the gospel, to be able to do some uh, miracles and, and do some amazing things for the kingdom. And then there's a tragedy that takes place. John the Baptist is executed. This is Jesus. Um, it's his relative, probably his cousin, just six months older than him maybe a, a very good friend, and it affects Jesus deeply. And it's tragic because John the Baptist, according to Jesus, was probably like the greatest man who ever lived uh, short of Jesus. And what makes it matters worse is how and why he was executed because it happened at the hands of this just messed up family. Listen, I'm just saying, if you think your family is a mess, listen to this one. This family, their family tree looked like a bowl of spaghetti. It was all over the place. It starts off with Herod, not Christmas Herod. It's Christmas Herod's son, Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas had a wife named Herodias. So they kind of have the same name. It's like a guy named Chris that marries Christine. It's kind of like Herod and Herod, Ant uh, Herod Antipas and Herodias. You wouldn't think that's a problem, except before Herodias was his wife, she was his sister-in-law because she had previously been married to his half-brother, Herod Philip. And before she was married to Herod Philip, before she was his sister-in-law, she was his niece because his other half-brother from another mother had her as his daughter. 
She has a daughter named Salome or Salome, or I like to call her Salami. And she was from the first marriage. She ends up marrying her great uncle. And after he dies, she's married his cousin. It's straight out of West Virginia. So you have this family that's just a total mess. And in the midst of it, John the Baptist says to Herod Antipas, this is not lawful for you to be married to your sister-in-law. It's wrong. She was upset. She's a mess. So she has um, her daughter uh, go in and dance for Herod and his drunk friends. And we're not talking a tap dance. It's really twisted and in result has John the Baptist beheaded and executed. This impacts Jesus greatly because it was right after that where Jesus says to his disciples, let's go, we need some rest. You can see he's just like, he's burdened by this, he's heavy by this, it's a massive loss, it's injustice in this, this fallen world, it's wrong. They go away for some time of rest, for some soul care, but the crowds follow them, the multitudes follow them. And as is this case, Jesus has compassion on them, and he feeds them. He feeds the 5,000. Some of you are familiar with that story. We're going to look at that a little bit next week, and I, and I just, I don't normally do this. I am so excited about next weekend's sermon. I mean, it's already written out. It's ready. It's, it, what we're going to see in the Word of God is amazing, and I'm just telling you, don't miss it. Last Thursday, I gave a, a little Cliff's Notes version of next weekend's sermon to Pastor Kip. He became a Christian. It's amazing sermon. Don't miss next weekend. So Jesus feeds the 5,000, he walks on water, he calms another storm, he heals a ton of people. Very significant stuff that happens in chapter six. That leads us to where we start, chapter seven, verse one. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and, and there's everything inside of us that wants to say, and they learned and they listened and they repented and believed the good news and they followed him and they worshiped him and they were transformed. But if you're familiar with the New Testament, that's not usually the case with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. There are a couple of times where there's a one-on-one with a Pharisee and Jesus. But when they come in mass, when they team up, when it's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're not coming to learn. They're not coming to grow. They're not coming to worship. They're coming to question Jesus, to try and paint him into a corner, to, to try and trick him, trick him to, to try and spy on him. And this time they see something that's happening yet again. And they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were, and it's in the quotes, unclean, that is unwashed. So he's saying, that's what my mom did all the time with me. Okay, we're going to get to that. It's a little bit different. We're going to get to that. But what we see here in this thing that happens is that one of the, probably one of the most fundamental differences between Jesus and the Pharisees. One of these things that, that they, they would not agree on, very important matters, and it's, it's interesting because they, they, they were so opposed to each other, diametrically opposed to each other, which caused eventually the Pharisees to do some diabolical things in this, this differentiation between these things. Now if you say, well, great, now we get a 2,000-year-old lesson about Jesus and the Pharisees. Yes, but the issue that was so fundamental in their difference, while the details play out differently, is an issue that has impacted a lot of us in this room. In fact, the issue that we're gonna look at today is the reason some of you walked away from church and the faith a long time ago, and maybe you're just coming back. The issue that we're gonna look at is why some of you had a problem, or even to this day, struggle with using good news as a way to describe your Christian or your church experience. The issue that we're going to talk about is why some of you have had or have this flat, lifeless religious experience, even in the Christian church. This issue is why some of you have been absolutely frustrated. This issue is why there are some Christians who are judgmental and condemning. This is the issue, and and the details play out different in the story than they do in our lives, but the issue is this. The issue has to do with this this, uh, kind of this um, outward, outer conformity versus this inner transformation. Like that there's this behavioral modification on the outside, devoid of any kind of inner character change on the inside. And with the Pharisees, it was this outer conformity, this behavioral modification, in place of and instead of, and no need for, in their mind, this inner transformation. And because of this, that Jesus would always come to, to, to odds with these guys and it would cause him to say things to them like, and using great hyperbole, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. What he's saying is you make the things that are so insignificant, very important, and the things that are so blatantly, obviously very important and significant, you ignore completely. 
It's why he would say to them, you are all like whitewashed tombs, beautiful, spectacular on the outside, but inside you are filled with dead men's bones and everything unclean. And in the seven woes in in Matthew 23, he says this to them, in the same way on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now this didn't go over well with them as you can tell, but he's saying, listen, you're all about this behavioral modification on the outside, but you're not really taking care of what's going on here on the inside. So Jesus and his disciples are there and his disciples are eating with unclean hands and there's an issue there. And then Mark gives us a little bit of an insight. Here's a, here's a quiz for you. Mark is writing this gospel, this story, probably you know, given to him from Peter. Be bold on this one. For whom? The Romans. Good, we got one. Okay, all right. We, we talked about this. I didn't expect you to, to remember it. All right. So this was written to people in Rome. These are Gentile followers after Christ. They're not Jewish. They don't understand Judaism. So what you find here is that Mark explains some stuff. He says, let me give you some backstory so you get it. Let me give you an example of that. For some of you, you were not raised in church and stuff. If I were to give an example about VBS, and I go, okay, hold on, hold on. Let me just explain to you. Some of you didn't know this. VBS stands for Vacation Bible School. It happened every summer during summer vacation. We'd go to a church for five days. There we would we'd glue popsicle sticks and macaroni on paper. We'd have a little story. It was great. And then our parents would find one in every different church because we'd have free childcare throughout the whole summer. That's what VBS. Now you understand. Now let me tell you this story. Okay. So Mark comes along and he says, let me explain to you some things that you don't get We get this because we were raised with it. So he gives this parenthetical footnote, just kind of a little bit of an explanation. Verse three, here's the parentheses. The Pharisees, he said, and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. I want to spend a little bit of time on this so that we can understand because most of us weren't raised in Judaism either. He says, they would not eat without doing this ceremonial washing. When he says ceremonial, what we have to understand is when they were washing the hands, this is different than when your mom said, go wash your hands before you come to the table because this had nothing to do with health and hygiene at all. It had to do with this symbolism, this symbolic ceremony about their hands. And there were very specific rules on how you should do this that you start by pouring water over your hands this way, and the amount of water, special water, you remember when Jesus turned the water into wine, Pastor Kip preached on that, those barrels of water, that was special water for ceremonial cleansing. You use that water, and you had to use a certain amount, at least one and a half eggshells of water, whatever that measurement meant, over. And then you would kind of do this with your hands, and then pour it over again this way, and they would drip off. There was this, it was a ceremony. It, It didn't matter if your hands were spotless, you still did this as a ceremony. And the other thing it says is that it was a tradition of the elders. This was not out of the Torah. This was not from the law of Moses. This was a tradition of the elders. And again, in Judaism, tradition holds great, great weight. Maybe some of you from your, uh, your reading of scripture understand why tradition was such a big deal for the Jewish people. Maybe you never read the scripture. Did you ever see Fiddler on the Roof? Okay, okay. So in there... Tevye does the whole tradition, you know, that song. But at the beginning of that, he begins to explain, you know, tradition, and this is what we do in tradition. And he says, and you may ask me, how did that get started? And I will tell you. I don't know. And then he goes on and says, it doesn't matter how it started. We don't care about that, but this is what we do. And this had been going on for hundreds of years, passed on generation to generation to generation, that the the rabbinic leaders were just just driven by definition. And so they would put together these traditions. We saw this uh, three weeks ago when we talked about the Sabbath. In the Ten Commandments, it says, you shall remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So they asked, okay, what does that mean? We don't want to break the law. How do you keep the Sabbath holy? If you were here, you'll remember there were 39 infractions that would cause you to break the Sabbath. This wasn't out of Scripture necessarily. This was more out of the tradition of the elders. This is, you do these things, that would be the case. And then, if you remember, each one of those had an explanation. So this is what that means. So it became like hundreds and literally thousands of these definitions. And that was, you know, that was just for the, the Sabbath. 
Then there's the 10 commandments and then there's the 613 commandments found within the Torah and there were all of these things. So they would have these, these traditions, these rules, these rituals that were not from God's word, not from the law and they were referred to as, as fence laws. This is how this works. Like God says, here's this command. We don't wanna break that. So let's back up and put another law out here so we don't even get close to it. Like when it says, you should not take the Lord's name in vain. Okay, good. Well, then I tell you what, they put a fence around that saying, don't even say the Lord's name. That way you'll never break the law. So they don't and they won't. That, like, you know, we talk about Yahweh or, or, or God or, or, or Jesus. They wouldn't say the Lord's name. In fact, they have the word Adonai to replace the name because they had this fence that set them back to keep them a, a safe distance away from the law so they wouldn't break. It's like if you've ever tried to build a house and there's a mud puddle on your lot and you have a 5,000 foot setback. Okay, I'm not upset about any of that, but it's like this, this wetland setback. We want to make sure you stay well away from whatever it is. So they would have these fence laws. Now, in Leviticus 11 through 15, there are all of these laws in the Bible about cleanliness and uncleanliness. And there are things in there that talks about things that are unclean, animals that are unclean, food that's under, unclean, people that are unclean, how you can become unclean, and the whole concept of unclean, as we've seen in this scripture when it's in the, in the little quotation marks, unclean meant that spiritually and morally, you were impure and unfit, that there was this separation, this distance between you and God because you're unclean. So for instance, if someone touched a corpse of a dead person, they were ceremonially unclean. They were spiritually and physically unfit. There was a separation between them and God until they went through the, the, the ceremonies, the rituals that would cause them to be clean again. A woman in her monthly cycle would be ceremonially unclean. There, there would be the separation, would not be allowed in the temple until that was done and then there was this cleansing. Gentiles, forever unclean. They just, because they're not a part of God's chosen race, they're not a part of the Jewish nation, they were unclean. And if someone was unclean and you touched them or they touched you, you would become unclean. It's like when, when Pastor Kip talked about the woman with the issue of blood touching Jesus, that was unheard of. Okay, bad example, but when I was a little kid at Lincoln Elementary School, I was a little kid. We had this little phrase and this little thing we would do if a girl touched us, we had girl germs. But then we could get rid of them if we touched our buddy and say, ha ha, girl germs, no returns. Because we had been somehow, we contracted the girl germs, but we could pass them off and then be clean again. And one of the things that we would often do is this ceremonial cleansing rite or ritual where we would take out an imaginary can of disinfectant. So the girl germs were gone. Now, bad example, but this is kind of what they had going on that you could contract these Gentile germs, these unclean germs. Someone touched them and now I'm unclean and now I have to go through this ritual. And so in the case where maybe someone might even accidentally touch them and they weren't even aware of it, they would go overboard to make sure that they're clean. I know I'm spending a lot of time on this, but it'll help you hopefully understand this. He goes on, he says this, still in the, in the parenthetical explanation. When they, the Jews uh, and, the, and the Pharisees, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash because they maybe have touched something on purpose or inadvertently, or maybe they were touched by something that was unclean. And even if they don't know, they want to make sure that they're clean. And they observe many, and that is such an understatement because there were literally thousands and thousands of these rules of these little tra traditions, many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles, which we say, well, what's the problem with that? We wash our dishes too. This is not talking about you know, health and hygiene. This is talking about ceremonial cleanliness. And with this one specifically, if there was a vessel like a cup or a pitcher or a bowl or a saucer, something that was hollow in nature, it was possible, this is again the tradition, it was possible that that could become unclean, but not from the outside. Didn't matter what or who touched it on the outside, it could not be contaminated from the outside, only on the inside, which part of it makes sense. That's where the food, the water, the wine, whatever's gonna be is in there. What's interesting is if a, a, a pottery bowl, cup, dish became unclean, it had to be broken, shattered, and the pieces had to be small enough that they couldn't be used again. Now, when you begin to understand all of this, 
There's a, a phrase and statement that Jesus made to the Pharisees that we understand on a surface level. Then suddenly you see like, whoa, there was a whole deeper level that he's talking about. Because again, in Matthew 23, he says to them, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup. They understood this. The outside cannot be contaminated. It didn't matter. He says, you're cleaning what doesn't even matter. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence, which means that cup, that dish needs to be shattered, needs to be destroyed. Blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. The depth of their understanding and what he might be implying about how they're living their lives, that all they care about is that which doesn't matter and what really matter is a cause for them to be destroyed and they're ignoring it completely. You put it in another context, it's like talking to someone saying, man, you wash your car regularly, but you haven't changed the oil in the 10 years that you've owned the car. What are you thinking? What good is it to have a good little Christmas tree air freshener when the transmission is blown? You, you, you're paying attention to things that are insignificant and you're completely avoiding that which is most important. So Jesus goes on. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live? This was a lifestyle. This wasn't an event. It wasn't just on the Sabbath. It wasn't just during Advent season or something like that. This was a lifestyle. They dedicated their whole lives to this. Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with, here it is again, un impure, unfit, separated from God, unclean hands? And Jesus doesn't answer them directly, but he says this, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. To which, I mean, Isaiah's their guy. Like, he's the prophet. And they're probably thinking, he, Isaiah prophesied about us? Hey, this is cool. And Jesus says, let me finish. <laughs> Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. You actors. You, you look like something. You appear some way, but it's not who you really are. There's all this on the outside, but you're just playing a role. And then he gives the prophecy from Isaiah. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Now I'll ask you a question, hypothetical, because I don't want you to shake your head. I don't want you to, to, to raise your hand. And I don't want you to point at anyone in this room. That would not be good. Have you ever known somebody that maybe says all the right things and maybe even says spiritual things, quotes scripture, knows theology, they have all the right words and they go to church and they're involved in church and they go to their small group and they're, they're involved with all that. And they have this lifestyle of all these rules. I mean, very strict and disciplined lifestyle. All the things that they do and all the things that they don't do. And they don't drink and smoke and chew and go with the girls and do. And whatever their list is. They have all the right words. They do all the right actions. They, they have all these things they do and don't do. But something just seems off. Because they're just bitter. And judgmental and prideful and self-righteous and condemning and, and, and cynical. And you just think... Yeah, the words are right and the actions seem right, but, but something's wrong in here. See, this isn't a brand new thing. This has been going on for thousands of years and it still happens today. I think what Jesus is getting at is that it's not about the strictness of your habits, but the state of your heart. I mean, you're doing all these things. You've got all these rules. You're, you've got these lifestyles and this habit, but, but somewhere inside here, something isn't right. And maybe, maybe if Jesus were speaking these words today, he would say, you, you Pharisees, you teachers of the law, you are like the Grinch. I mean, you remember the Grinch? You remember that with Jim Carrey when he looks at the little heart monitor and goes, fantastic, down two sizes. You're like, you, you Pharisees, you put together this big, green, hairy, religious, traditional thing, but your heart is two sizes too small. What's most important, you never give any attention to. 
you haven't even addressed the most important thing. And then Jesus makes a really, really strong statement, and he makes it twice. Verse 8, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. Boy, that is dangerous, friends. And he says it again. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And then he goes on, and we don't have time to get into this, but he goes on and he talks about the fifth commandment and a command out of Leviticus that are in the words of God about honoring your father and mother. And then their traditions with this thing called Corbin, which is this gift to God, and how they've manipulated their traditions and in essence, broken God's laws. I wish we had time to go into that maybe some other year. But he does all that, and at the end of it, he says, so thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down one generation to the next, to the next, and you do many things like that. He says, your whole system and the system that you were taught and the system that you're teaching and the system that, that you've all bought into, you're missing what's most important. You put man's traditions over God's truth. And that's what has become more important. Your religion is more important than the word of God to you. And it's amazing here because he brings up Moses and Isaiah, the law and the prophets, the two big guys. He says, let's just talk about the ones, you know, the law of Moses and, and the prophecy of Isaiah. He says, you're, you're missing it. Now, I want to push pause in the sermon right here for a minute. And I know this kind of is, is a little bit of shifting gears without a clutch. But I, I, when I was working on the sermon a couple weeks ago, I thought about something. And I, and I kind of debated, do I share this or not? And, and I, I, want, I want to share, I want you to know, some of you know this already, but I want you to know something about me. And it helps helps me understand this. And here's the truth about me, and I'm not proud of this. And what I'm going to tell you is not from a, from a season of my life that I'm very proud of. But I'm in recovery, and I don't say that lightly, because I am a recovering Pharisee. And before I go any further, I want you to know I am so incredibly thankful for the Christian heritage that I grew up with. So grateful for my family, for Christian parents, Christian grandparents. So grateful for all the Sunday school teachers and youth group leaders. So grateful for my church. I am so thankful for that. I praise God for that. In the midst of all of that blessing from God to have that kind of a spiritual heritage, early on, there were these little roots of Phariseeism in my life. Because I was a fairly good kid, I was a good rule follower, I was a people pleaser. And because that early on in my life, there was some pride with the things I did and didn't do. And there was some self-righteousness that came with that. And as I got a little bit older, though I wouldn't recognize it this way, there was some judgment towards others who did or didn't do the things that I thought they shouldn't or should do. And it kind of kept growing in my life. And when I graduated from high school, I went to a small conservative Christian college, and I'm grateful for that school, loved it. My education was amazing. My college experience was wonderful. Went into the ministry, majored in religion. In this small conservative Christian college, early 80s, there were some pretty strict rules that we abided by. And it was not a problem for me because of my conservative upbringing and because I was a rule keeper. I mean, I'll give you some of the examples, like, there was mandatory chapel. We had to go to chapel, and to ensure that we did, you had to check your name off when you went into chapel. I've heard that you could have your roommate check your name off for you. I wouldn't know, but you had to go to chapel. Not only that, but we had a curfew if you lived on campus, in the dorms or the on-campus apartments. Not a problem for me. I'm a rule keeper. Curfew in the middle of the week was 11 o'clock. On weekends, it was midnight. No problem. My mom always told me there's nothing good that happens after midnight. <laughs> and then there were these rules about the dorms, the girls' dorms, the guys' dorms, where you could go. Could, couldn't go into the rooms, but you could go into the lounge. If there was someone else in there, you couldn't go in there by yourself with a girl. And there were all these rooms, you know, about the door. And dancing, no dancing. 
No dancing on campus, and there was an unspoken, no, not written, unspoken rule, and not off campus either. And no drinking, all that. Okay, so there's all these rules, and I really didn't have a problem following them. And then, and, and what's, it's going to sound judgmental and condemning. I'm just, please know my heart, I'm not judging. I'm telling you what happened in my junior, senior years of, of uh, college that the athletic department began to recruit some athletes, some very good athletes for our small little NAIA school. And I will say, and this is not a judgment, I think they would have said as well, they weren't really that interested in a Christian higher level of education. In fact, I think it's safe to say some of them weren't considering education to be a priority anyway. That's why they were playing at our school. Their grades wouldn't allow them to stay with the school that originally recruited them. And some of them were not looking for a, a situation where there were strict rules, and that's why some of them were <laughs> at our school, because they got kicked out of other schools. And that's not a judgment. It's the reality. It's the fact of the matter. And so these athletes, who many of them would not even claim to be Christians, come into this environment with these strict rules, like curfew. Some of these guys had never had a curfew in their life. And now you're telling me I'm supposed to be in by 11? Uh, and on weekends by midnight, and you're telling me I can't go dancing, and you're not going to allow me to go in that girl's room? What are you talking about? And so some of these athletes regularly broke these rules. Here's what I'm not proud of. In that season, in my religion major little life, rule-keeping, I would judge, and in my mind, condemn these guys. And I spent more time being worried about them breaking the rules than the fact that their lives were broken. And I cared more about the school's laws than the fact that their souls were lost. And I spent more time judging and condemning and talking about them rather than engaging with them, listening, hearing their story, loving them, and praying for them. I'm just telling you, when Jesus talks to these Pharisees and says your rules and your self-righteousness is more important than what's going on in here, I get it. And I believe that God has been doing a work in my life, and I pray that he will continue, that I would begin to be more and more like Christ, that I would walk more and more in grace, and that I would understand what it is to focus on what's really important. But I get where these guys are coming from. Back to our story. Verse 14. Again, so this is going on. Jesus says, this is a teachable moment. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, okay, everybody, everybody, listen to me. Come around here. Everyone, under, under, I want you to understand this. So now it's not just the Pharisees. It's not just the disciples. He says, I, I, I want to I I talk here. Let's come on in here. I want to tell you something. And this is what he says. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. William Barclay, in his commentary, said this next section of scripture, like verses uh, 15 through 18, he says, this could be one of the most, if not the most, one of the most revolutionary concepts in the entire New Testament for, for those who are following Christ. So we don't see it as that big of a deal. This was huge to them. So what he says is, listen, this whole idea of being unclean, spiritually, morally unfit, this separation from God, he talks about it here. And what you find is that this, Jesus agrees with the fact he disagrees with the source. He agrees with the fact that there are people that are unclean. He just doesn't agree with how they think that they become unclean. He says, yeah, being unclean, being unfit, being distanced from God, absolutely. In fact, it's worse than you even think. My disciples with their unwashed hands, yeah, they're unclean. They're unfit before God. The Gentiles, absolutely. They're unclean, more so than you even understand. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, with all their laws and all their traditions and all their rules and their meticulously life kept lifestyle, they're unclean too. And you know that Jesus was fully aware of the words from Isaiah in Isaiah 64. 
all of us, Jew and Gentile, disciple and Pharisee, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts, all of our rules, all of our efforts, all of our discipline, all the things we do and don't do are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Says, you're absolutely right. They're unclean and so are they and so are you. But it's not why you think. Got a bacon cheeseburger here. This is double unclean. I'll tell you why. Bacon comes from the pig. Turkey bacon is not bacon. It's a lie that you've been fed by some nutritionist. Bacon comes from the pig. The pig was an unclean animal. You didn't touch the pig. That's why the prodigal son being in the pigs, that was such an amazing thing. You didn't touch pig. You didn't touch pork. You didn't eat it. Not at all. The fact that I'm holding this sandwich that has bacon in it would, according to their traditions, make me ceremonially unclean, unfit, distanced, barrier from God. In addition to that, it's a cheese burger, which is unkosher. You don't mix meat with dairy. Here's cheese and a hamburger touching, and I'm touching both of them. The fact that I'm holding this doubly unclean bacon cheeseburger makes me unfit morally and spiritually, not just to be your pastor, but to stand before God. Can I get an amen? amen. No, you should not say that. <laughs> See how judgmental you are. This is what Jesus was talking about, you. And before you get all high and mighty in your amen corner about me being unclean up here ceremonially, if you have ever eaten clam chowder, if you've ever had an oyster, a mussel, a scallop, a lobster, a crab, if you've ever eaten octopus or eel on your sushi, if you've ever had catfish or sturgeon, you're just as unclean as I am. If you've ever had pizza that had cheese and one of these toppings, pick pepperoni, Canadian bacon, sausage, hamburger, or bacon bits, any or all of those. If you've ever had lasagna with meat and cheese, if you've ever had spaghetti with meat sauce or a meatball that had Parmesan cheese on it, you're just as unclean as me. Because all of that takes you out of being clean. All of that is unkosher. And Jesus makes his revolutionary statement, don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean, for it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then Jesus gets graphic. <laughs> and then out of his body. And Mark puts in a parenthetical footnote. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Now, listen. In a minute. I bought that at 2 o'clock yesterday afternoon. You think I'm joking? Man, that's bad. Now, listen. I ate that. I touched that. But that doesn't separate me from God. Now, Jesus says it goes into the stomach. It might harden my arteries. It might increase my cholesterol. This is not, eating this is not going to separate from me from God. In fact, if I eat enough of them, I'll see him sooner than later. <laughs> Jesus said, don't you understand? Yes, we're unclean. But it's not because we didn't wash our hands. And it's not because we touched something or someone touched us. That's not it. So let's talk about unclean. Verse 20. He went on. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. This phrase, for from within. For from within. Out of men's hearts. This is the source here. You want to talk about unclean? 
Don't talk to me about a cheeseburger. Don't talk to me about washing your hands. From within, out of men's heart comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Now we're talking unclean. That, that is what puts you farther away from God. That's what separates you from God. But it has nothing to do with what you've touched or eaten or, or who you, you know, associated with. It's there in verse 23, he says, all these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. That that's what happens. It's not, it's not us doing this outward behavioral meta, uh, modification saying, well, oh, look how spiritual I am. He says, no, it's the outside in doesn't work. He says, it's the inside what happens within you. This transformation, this life of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit, and that changes you. I think the greatest example of this whole thing, finding great liberty, is in the Apostle Paul. I mean, Saul, when, when he was Saul, I mean, he, he was a Pharisee. In, in, in uh, Philippians 3, he just goes on about how he said, my, you know, my parents, <laughs> my parents were Hebrews. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I, I, from birth, I've had this. Eight days old, I get circumcised. I mean, I've, we went through all the laws. I grew up with all this stuff. He becomes a Pharisee. He knows not only the Ten Commandments, he keeps them. He knows the 613 commandments of the Torah, he keeps them. He knows all of the traditions of the elders, thousands and thousands of them. He's memorized them and he has meticulously kept them. He says in Philippians 3, 9, he says, as for legalistic righteousness, I am faultless. You're not gonna find anyone that does this better than me. And he follows up and he says, but whatever was to my profit, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. And then listen to this. What is more? What is more, he says, is that I consider everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. That knowing Christ eclipses all of my rule keeping. Knowing Christ eclipses all of the laws. In fact, he would go on and he would say, next slide, please. The next slide, please. Yeah, consider them rubbish. And this is a very, very mild translation of this word. It's a very strong word that I'm not going to use in church. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That's our goal. That we would gain Christ and be found in him. In Christ alone not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. This is the good news. That it's not about what I've done, it's about what Christ has done. That I'm robed in his righteousness and stand faultless before his throne, not because of my efforts, but because of what Christ did. You know what's interesting is that, is that Paul... Years before the, the book of Mark was given to the church in Rome, Paul had written them a letter. And he writes this in Romans chapter 10. He's talking about his Jewish brothers. So since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own through the laws, through the traditions, through all those things, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who keeps the Ten Commandments. No, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who follows the 613 laws of the Old Testament, who knows all the traditions of the elders, that there would be righteousness for everyone who believes because it's the righteousness of Christ and it would come at great expense. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. Every single one of us is unclean, unfit, unworthy and there's not a thing we can do about it but God in his love and the grace of Christ says I'll take care of that at great expense what they came to understand is that the unclean would not be made clean by washed hands but by pierced hands that what Christ did on the cross is what would give us the ability to stand right before the Lord there's an old old hymn we sang we, in fact we didn't even sing it that much in our church but at the, the chorus it says are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. 
Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are they washed in the blood of the one, the subject, Jesus? See, until we understand this, if all we think Christianity is is a list of rules to follow, we will forever be burdened, frustrated, self-righteous, judging, and condemning. And there will be no life at all. Are we to be transformed and changed? Absolutely. But it's not just outward behavioral modification. Jesus would say in Matthew 12, you make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. That Jesus would change something here. And as a result of that, out here would be changed as well. So here's the challenge I want for us, is maybe this week, to try and keep this on the forefront of our thinking, is to just pray this prayer every day. Jesus, continue to change me from the inside. Continue to change what's most important, my heart. Let me become more like the one who is the subject. I'm gonna invite you to stand. We're gonna close with this song that we learned earlier it talks about how God takes our hearts filled with stones and coal and refines it with his goodness, his fire into the gold of God.
my heart. I see no stones. I see no cold. I see your gold. I look in my heart. I see no stones. I see no gold. I see your gold. Jesus, we just ask that you would continue that transformation, that refining of our hearts to take what it is and make it what it could be in the grace of your son, Jesus Christ, the power of your Holy Spirit, that it would allow us to live the lives, be the men and the women that you've created us to be. And from the inside, we would be transformed to make a difference in this world and to glorify you. Jesus, thank you for being our subject. And we pray this in your great name. Amen. Amen. Hey, real quick before you go, if you'd like prayer, our prayer team will be here. If you want to talk to Caitlin about working with the Edge Middle School, she'll be in the back there. If you're in uh, Financial Peace University or Starting Point tomorrow night, finally get to start. If you want a cheeseburger that's 20 hours old, 22 hours old, right there, it's yours. I love you. You're out of here. Have a great afternoon. In the soul, clear.